We'll hear argument now in number 897272, Ronald Allen Harmelin v. Michigan. Ms. Johnson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is about the most severe penalty short of death, coupled with a total lack of discretion at any critical stage in the sentencing process. The petitioner, Ronald Harmelin, was convicted of possession of over 650 grams of cocaine in Michigan. He was sentenced to mandatory life in prison with no chance of parole ever. The question is whether this is cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment. Before we go any further, let me make one thing perfectly clear. Mr. Harmelin is not eligible for parole ever. Under this statute, he will not see the parole board. The notion that a well-behaved lifer who is punished by life in prison will not actually serve life is wrong. He will serve life in prison with no chance Ms. of parole. Ms. Johnson, uh, does the state allow commutation of sentences by the governor or something of that sort? Pardon? Every state in the nation has commutation by the governor for any crime, whether it be a mass murderer or a serial rapist. Is that but ever, is that a provision that's used on occasion in Michigan? It is, it is, has never been used in a drug offender scenario by it's our governor. used in some circumstances. In it has been used very infrequently in Michigan. However, this court in Salem v. Helm has said that the mere ad hoc chance of executive clemency is not enough to preclude Eighth Amendment review because if it was, the Eighth Amendment review would be meaningless. Our governor uh, does not have a history of uh, pardoning people, however. Seven years ago, this court in Salem v. Helm uh, fashioned a proportionality test uh, to determine whether a sentence is proportional to the crime. Well, Ms. Ms. Johnson, uh, Solemn against Helm was a 5-4 to four decision, and it cut back on Rummel against Estelle, which was also a 5-4 to four decision. Do you think the court has reached equilibrium, or do you think that more changes might take place? I don't think that this court should treat stare decisis too cavalierly. Well, do you think they did treat it, how do you think they treated stare decisis in Solemn against Helm? I don't think that uh, Solemn v. Helm reversed uh, or even narrowed Rummel. I think the facts in Rummel, who was eligible for parole and was going to be paroled within 10 or 12 years, was the whole difference. We're talking about a case where a person is in mandatory, with mandatory life with no parole ever. That's a whole different thing than somebody that serves a life sentence and is eligible after 10 years. You see I no conflict in, in, in the reasoning of, of the cases? I, I, I must admit, I, I think the cases are difficult to square, so far as their approach and their reasoning are concerned. Well, the majority in Solomon v. Helm said that there was no uh, conflict. They said that the, the difference was that in Solomon v. Helm, the person was, uh, Mr. Helm was sentenced to mandatory life with no parole, uh, which is uh, different in kind than a sentence of uh, life where you can be uh, paroled. And in uh, uh, Rommel v. Estelle, this court, uh, even the uh, minority uh, in Rommel v. Helm, or what, no, the, in Rommel v. Helm, the majority, this court said that a, a ticket, a parking ticket, if someone was sentenced to life in prison for a parking ticket, that would be disproportionate. So I don't think that if you were to reverse Solomon v. Helm, I don't think you would necessarily have to throw out the whole proportionality test. But going back to the test, the three factors that were used are the harshness of the penalty, the uh, gravity of the offense, what other states do with your crime, and what your state does with other crimes. 
Taking those in reverse order, Michigan is way out of line with every other state in the Union. Uh, it is way out of line with what the federal statutes are. As far as the other states, uh, the majority of the states have sentences for possession of 650 grams somewhere between 0 and 10 years, and all of the states have discretion somewhere to uh, factor in the mitigating factors, whether the person's a first-time offender, whether he's a minor participant, whether there is some sort of violence or not, whether uh, the person is a drug addict. There's maybe, some sort of discretion. Maybe Michigan has a bigger problem with, uh, with drugs than uh, Oregon and, and most of the other states do. Isn't, isn't a state entitled to feel uh, uh, more deeply about some crimes than other states do? Uh, yes, I think uh, states certainly can uh, create laws trying to solve problems, and Michigan does have a big drug problem, as do California and uh, D.C., some other states who, that don't have those. And it's, it's a problem that causes the loss of human life, not just the people that use the drugs, but the people who buy and sell it kill one another and innocent bystanders. And what, why can't Michigan feel very strongly about that and say, and say bye, George, we're going to put a stop to it? We don't care whether other states want to... Uh, Right along with it, we're going to impose a severe penalty so that no one will use uh, use drugs. We we can't impose capital punishment, but we'll put them to prison for life. Why is that wrong? There are a couple answers to that. One is that uh, a a state can propose uh, legislation, but it still has to pass constitutional muster. In this war on drugs, we have to fight it with constitutional weapons. And if if a state is going to uh, legislate against drugs, uh, they should. They should uh, keep it within uh, some sort of rational basis. This legislation has the ability to uh, sentence to life people who are major traffickers, people who are mules, aiders and abettors, minor participants, or there's always the possibility of somebody who would merely possess the 650. Uh, that's not out of the question. Oakland County is the richest county. So what my... What most, un- most unlikely. Well, you're you're but, not willing to concede that having that much is is very good indication that it's not being held for personal consumption but for distribution? Uh, the state didn't prove anything. So my position is that my client has been convicted of mere possession. Of an, an awfully large quantity of... of well, I don't know if it's an awfully large quantity. In the federal system, in order to be a kingpin under the criminal con- continuing criminal enterprise statute, a person has to have... Five people working under him. He has to uh, distribute 150 kilos of cocaine in a year or make $10 million and have a continuing criminal uh, enterprise going. So Ms. Th- Johnson, that would be, in the scheme of things, I'm not sure. Uh, at page 6 of the joint appendix, the pre-sentence report is present. And the pre-sentence report that the judge had before him, as I gather, said that police investigators described the defendant as a large-scale drug trafficker delivering down to mid-level dealers. Now, the judge, even in a different jurisdiction, would have been able to take that fact into consideration. That's correct. The pre-sentence report did say that. The reason it said it is because Michigan defines a large-scale drug trafficker as someone who possesses over 650. So who is the Oak Park Police or the Michigan State Police to argue with that? This pre-sentence... This doesn't seem to me to rely on the statutory definition. It says police investigators describe the defendant as a large-scale drug trafficker delivering down to mid-level dealers. If the the statute says that, you don't need this. I I would... uh, If if there were a sentencing hearing on this, I would object to that language. Since there was... We're not talking about a Sixth Amendment case here. You're challenging this on the basis of the Eighth Amendment. It's a cruel and unusual punishment. 
And I think we have to take as a fact for what, what the judge had before him in the, in the pre-sentence report. Certainly he would have used that in sentencing had he had discretion, wouldn't he? I think you have to take as a fact that that was in the pre-sentence report, but I think you have to take it, uh, you have to realize also that it, because Michigan doesn't make any dif- any, def- any difference between a major or a minor trafficker, anybody with 650 gets life in prison, uh, it discourages advocacy at the sentencing proceeding. So something that would have been uh, objected to by counsel uh, was not in that. So... How do, how do we know that? I guess we don't know that, and uh, that's the whole point. You can, you can infer that some things the first would not be uh, objected to if it didn't make any reason to object to them. I don't think you can, you don't have any facts in front of you on this case. Uh, the, the facts uh, are pretty bare, but the, the fact that Michigan defines a person who is possessing 650 as a major trafficker uh, then no one argues with that. There's no reason. It discourages advocacy at the sentencing uh, level. I'm a little puzzled. This is a mandatory sentence, isn't it? That's correct. I mean, why would you argue about it before the judge then? That's my point exactly. Since it is a mandatory sentence, nobody objected to, uh, to the pre-sentence report. Nobody said whether he was a major trafficker or not, because it didn't matter. Whether he was a major trafficker or whether he had it for his own possession or whether he was a minor participant carrying the package across the street for somebody who owned the package, you still get the same sentence. But you so, said a moment ago, Ms. Johnson, that you were taking the position your, your client had only be convicted of possession and that, therefore, it was at the very bottom end of the scale. I think the pre-sentence report tends to cut against that. And, and my position is that the pre-sentence report is inaccurate. But whether it's accurate or not... My position is that the very statute on its face, because it's so broad, because it, 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 it is possible to sentence people who are traffickers, people who are mules, people who are minor participants, well, or wouldn't, possessors. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that if there was clear proof that here was a, a real drug uh, kingpin, that this mandatory sentence might be constitutional as applied to him, and yet be quite unconstitutional as applied to somebody else? Some minor, some person walking across the street is a delivery boy. This isn't a First Amendment case. It has overbreadth or anything. Well, there are some, there are some problems with the, the overbreadth of this statute and some presumptions well, in this well. statute as well. But this, this it definitely would be well, would cruel. You say, would you say that the statute is necessarily, would necessarily be unconstitutional on its face if this was a really a... A, really a drug kingpin, and everybody admitted it? That would be a closer question. However, I don't believe that well, mandatory how life... how would you answer the close question? I don't believe that in non-death cases, mandatory life in prison is a constitutional sentence. I think that... For anything? For anything. I think You can that imagine no crime? Oh, how about first-degree murder? Well, that's a, not, that's a death case. No, there, no, no. Suppose you, have a, suppose you have a state which doesn't have a death penalty. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, my, my definition of a death, of non-death case, I'm talking about, in Michigan, we have a first-degree murder statute where we do get mandatory life in prison, and there is no groundswell of judges who are having a problem with that. Well, do you have a problem with No, I do not have a problem. So that there are some statutes, some crimes that, in your view, can constitutionally be punished with a mandatory life sentence? Yes, the intentional taking right, of so a human life. That's all? In my view, in Michigan's view as well, other than the 650 statute, first-degree murder and felony murder are punished with mandatory life in prison with no parole. 
But those statutes, by their very nature, uh, the very elements of the crime narrow the class of people who can be punished by the elements of the crime. You have to have premeditation, deliberation. You have to actually take a life. And, or in felony murder, you have to have uh, you have to take a life, or you have to intend to kill, intend to do great bodily harm, or act with reckless disregard. So you have that mental culpability in those areas, uh, proof of intent, proof of uh, moral depravity, that a man or that would that would make the sentence of uh, mandatory life with no parole more proportional. It's, it's only about a decade or so ago that, that, that we found in the Constitution a prohibition on imposing capital punishment for anything except the killing of a, of a human being. And now you say that we also can impose life, it's also unconstitutional to impose life imprisonment for anything uh, except the, uh, the taking of a human life. I, I, I sense a certain ratchet effect uh, uh, here. Well, you, this court has said that. The what, 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 what about thirty years to a fifty-year-old, or to a sixty-year-old? Does that amount to life imprisonment? I think the court needs to have some sort of discretion to decide whether the person under this statute, whether they are a major or a minor participant, whether they are a first-time offender, just a mule of transport. But my main problem is with the non-parolability. Well, what do you what do you do about someone who's who's not likely to, li- to live thirty-five years? And he gets a mandatory 35 years under a statute. He's, a, he's 60 years old when he's convicted. Is, does that come within your prohibition? You can only give that sentence to someone who's taken a human life? That would be a close question, but outside the realm of these facts. Well, I'm, I'm just, you know, testing what you're... You're asking us to create a new constitutional rule that I've not heard of before. What is, what's the criterion for it? I think there needs to be some sort of discretion to decide, at least this statute, where there's no discretion to decide the culpability of the person, coupled with the mandatory life with no chance of parole ever, is cruel and unusual. As to numbers of sentences where the person probably won't live, I'm, I'm not sure. But the fact they well, would I still thought, have. I thought this court had made reasonably clear that outside the capital. Uh, murder context, that mandatory sentencing was all right. You seem to be arguing that no mandatory sentencing scheme can remain in effect, that the Constitution requires judicial discretion, and yet I had thought in Sumner and Woodson and perhaps Rummel that the Court had made clear that's not the position this Court has taken. This court has said that the, the sentence of death is different in kind, qualitatively different than uh, any other sentence any, with a length of years. But my position is that mandatory life in prison with no chance of parole ever is death in prison. There's no way out. It, it, he will die in prison. So for that reason, it is qualitatively different. And I feel that a statute that has no discretion to decide who's going to be punished by that statute and coupled with the fact that he will die in prison makes it more like a death penalty uh, case than any other number of years. And, and um, this court has, uh, has uh, developed a doctrine of constitutionality in the death penalty cases for individualized sentencing. As far as um, mandatory minimum sentencing, if they are small, like five or ten years, I don't have a position on that because I haven't really studied that issue. Uh, well, and yet you, you, I thought you said a while ago, but there are some crimes that, uh, uh, for which uh, a mandatory life sentence without parole uh, is okay. Uh, yes. The, the, I think the intentional taking of a human life 
is, uh, is a crime that's universally held to be uh, that, to show that sort of depravity. Um, well, what about, what about some very aggravated recidivist situations? Someone who four successive times has committed aggravated rape or has committed mayhem. Do you think it would be a violation of the Eighth Amendment to sentence them on the conviction for the fourth time to life in prison without possibility of parole? I don't know if that would be a violation. A state has a different interest in trying to stop recidivist behavior. And a person who has shown by their behavior that they can't conform their behavior to societal norms, there's a whole different interest there than in this drug scenario where we have a first-time offender, where we have possibly just a minor participant, and where we have no indication that uh, if he were paroled uh, that he would uh, be in any danger of recidivism. So there is a different interest there. I'm I'm not sure that I understand the principle on which you are distinguishing mandatory life in a homicide case from mandatory life in a non-homicide case. What is the principle? The principle, I believe that society agrees that the intentional taking of human life is uh, the worst possible crime there is. This court said in Coker v. Uh, Georgia, that uh, it was all right to, uh, it was not all right to uh, to give the death penalty to a person who raped an adult woman. This court drew quite a line there at the intentional taking of human life, uh, and I think that that uh, line still holds. Yes, but we're dealing here with mandatory uh, life imprisonment. Why, why do you draw the line where you do on this penalty? Because mandatory life in prison is death in prison. The person has no hope to get out ever. So, in, in, in effect, you're saying we must regard it as the equivalent of a death sentence? Is, is that what your argument hinges on? Well, that's one of the things my argument hinges on. Well, what if, what if we don't accept that? Then uh, I what do you have left? A couple of things. You have a, the, the solemn B. Helm test, where you have to measure the gravity of the offense with the uh, severity of the crime. I mean, the gravity of the punishment with the gravity of the crime. You have to look at what is done with other uh, states. Uh, this court in Stanford v. Kentucky uh, developed an evolving standard of decency test where you looked at what uh, the other 50 states did. And as far as uh, this crime, Michigan has the only statute where there is no discretion and there is no parole. M- Michigan has perhaps a big drug problem, but so do other states. And, and our drug problem doesn't seem to be getting any better with, because of this law. The, the other states... Uh, have some kind of discretion so that you can decide whether a person is a minor or a major participant. There has to be some discretion somewhere. Johnson, let me just see if I don't understand what you're trying to say, if you haven't quite said it. The court has drawn a line between some crimes for which death is a constitutionally permissible punishment and some for which it's not. And you're saying this is on the side of the line that would not permit death to be imposed. Yes. And therefore, it, but, it, but the punishment nevertheless is different from all. I mean, therefore, there, there may well be a different rule for this category of punishment than there would be for, for, for crimes for which death would be a permissible punishment. And that line has already been drawn by the court. Yes. And that would fall in with the Solomon v. Helm analysis as well. In Helm, the seven-time recidivist, this court found that uh, his sentence was cruel and unusual as to him because uh, the sentence of mandatory life in prison with no chance of parole was so harsh compared to uh, even his seven-time recidivist uh, behavior. But we could say in the death penalty cases, as we have many times, that death is different. You really can't say that life imprisonment is different. Life imprisonment for a 
for a 20-year-old is no different from, uh, from a 20-year sentence for a, for a 70-year-old. Life in prison. How, how can we say that, uh, you, I mean, if the criterion is whether you will die in prison, a mandatory life sentence is no different from a mandatory term of years, depending upon the age of the person convicted. Well, under mandatory term of years, there is a parolability. There is good time, special good time, all kinds of... No, I'm, uh, I'm, positing, I'm positing a mandatory term of years without any good time, without anything else. Just 20 years. You do 20. Michigan has recently... Is that different, too? Does that come within your, uh, your prescription, depending upon how old the person condemned is? Michigan has recently struck down uh, cases with what they call basketball scores, where people were give, given 100 to 200 years. And they did it with actuarial tables where the sentences had to come into what the life realm, the lifespan of the defendant would be. So in Michigan, no matter what kind of years you are given, you still have some hope that someday you will be able to get out. Whereas in this mandatory yeah. life... Well, that may be the case in Michigan. It's not the case in my hypothetical. And, and how do you answer uh, my, my hypothetical? Why is... You know, we say death is different, and you tell us that life imprisonment is different. But life imprisonment isn't different from a flat term of years for an elderly person, is it? Not, not different from a very rare occasional hypothetical, no. <laughs> Thank you, Justice Stevens. That's your answer. <laughs> and an excellent one. You, you want us to say that uh, taking it a human life is constitutionally different and that society could not agree on any other crime that was so close to that, that mandatory life in prison is correct. And I, as, as with some of my colleagues, don't understand the principle for that. Is it, you say it's because of universal acceptance or... Universal condemnation. I'm not sure that all of society doesn't take some crimes and elevate them to the status of intentional killing, child molestation of a, of a, of a young child, uh, kidnapping. Uh, we, we have to write the opinion, so we need to know what standard it is that we're supposed to use in order to adopt your view. Well, the standard I would propose, of course, is the standard that this court fashioned in Solemn v. Helm, where you would... Well, we're right back there. It's just the, the difference between... I've just pointed out that if, if, you, if you say that this is based on some societal consensus, I have no evidence that that consensus exists. Uh, I was taking that from, from the Coker case, where the, uh, this court said that rape was different than intentional taking of human life, and so the uh, sentence of... Death was unconstitutional for a person uh, who was convicted of rape. That's where I was drawing that line. Uh, in Michigan, uh, it's clear that serious criminal acts such as rape, second-degree murder, and armed robbery are punished with less severity than uh, possession of cocaine. So you have vicious people, dangerous criminals, who are convicted, who can only in Michigan get up to life in prison, but it's not mandatory life, it's life with parole, and it's life with some discretion, the judge has a chance to uh, look at the mitigating factors and decide what kind of sentence to give a person. There's discretion somewhere, and there's also parole. In this case, however, we've got no discretion anywhere. We've got people who can be kingpins, people who can be mules, people who can be possessors, 
and they are all getting mandatory life in prison with no discretion at all. Mr. Johnson, is it true that this hasn't had any effect in cutting down the number of dope cases? Uh, I think the prosecutor in, in, in his brief has admitted that the drug problem is getting worse and worse in Michigan. Every time so it you hasn't put, had any effect on cutting it down. No, it hasn't. Every time you catch a well, mule... It, it, it might be even worse if it weren't for this statute. It looked to me like it's worse from the figure. Every time you put a mule in prison, there's someone else to take his, his place. So as far as deterrence, this isn't working. If that is going to be a, an, uh, any reason for it. But so, so deterrence is not a reason for sentencing? Deterrence is a reason for sentencing. What I'm saying is... Well, if, 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 there's, if there's a mule ready to take their place every time someone's put in prison, then isn't it a plausible answer that more deterrence is needed? Uh, if, if the price, if, if the profits from doing business in, 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 in cocaine are so tremendously high that people would take these risks, doesn't it follow from that that a severe sentence must be required? But most of the people that are taking this, these risks don't even know what the law is. They're, this encourages the uh, recruitment of juveniles and uh, young people from the inner city uh, that are the ones that are carrying these packages for the major dealers. So it isn't deterring any crime at all. Uh, the, the drug problem is not such an easy problem. It's a problem of unemployment and poverty. And just putting more and more young people in jail uh, is not going to solve anything. Uh, uh, what are you going to do next? Cut their arms off or put... Just uh, sentence them all to uh, death. There's, you're not solving the problem by doing that. Apparently the Michigan legislature thought differently. I mean, that's a, that's a good argument. It may well be correct, but uh, I assume it was made to the Michigan legislature when they, when they passed this law. At the time they passed this law, the, uh, some of the uh, opponents of the law realized that what is in real, reality happening might happen, that the uh, mules of transport would be hired by the kingpins to uh, carry the drugs, and that perhaps those people who are often drug addicts would end up doing this mandatory life in prison. The uh, proponent of the law now has come out uh, in op opposition of it and, and has uh, said that that's what's happening. Of the 123 people in Michigan prisons, uh, that's, and there's one other point that I'd like to make. Uh, when a major trafficker is caught in a state court, the feds come in, take him over to the federal courthouse, and give him a chance to cooperate or a chance to make uh, some sort of a deal to get a lesser sentence. So the people that we have in our state court are the smaller guys, the ones that don't know enough to cooperate, don't have any information to trade, and they're the ones that are doing this mandatory now, life. Johnson, is, is there any prosecutorial discretion still in Michigan for whether to prosecute someone for this uh, a particular offense more than 650 grams? Could a prosecutor decide the facts warranted prosecution for a smaller amount? Um, I think they have, a, they have the ability to cut deals with, with people who cooperate. Uh, or just not to charge the full potential offense. Is yes, that right? I think that's true. So while there may not be judicial discretion, there still is some built-in at the charging stage, in effect. Yes, there is prosecutorial discretion. That's all there is. And that's one of the problems with the law, because if, if, if the person has information, they'll take him to the federal courthouse where he can make a deal and get three or four years instead of mandatory life. So the people who have no information, the very, very small people, the mules of transport, are the ones that are getting this, man, this mandatory life in prison. And that's what's uh, wrong with this law. Mrs. Johnson, may I ask you, at the back of your brief, you have a 
discussion of the pros and cons of the legislation. What is the official status of that? It, the, uh, it did, it's called the Law Library, and you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Well, what, tell me a little bit about that, if you would. Uh, the people who were proposing this law thought it would deter crime by putting major traffickers in prison for the rest no, of the No, I know what life. it says. I mean, what is the, is this an official legislative history yes. in Michigan? Yes, is that's a, the House uh, legislative history, the proposed bills that were, that were circulated uh, at the time uh, in committee and uh, at the time they were making the law. So the one it recites that the Office of the Attorney General opposed the legislation, we can count on that as being an official statement. Yes, yeah. yes, that's official from the uh, legislative uh, journals in Michigan. I would like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Ms. Johnson. Uh, Mr. Thompson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and, and may it please the Court. As you consider the petitioner's case, I think it's important to keep in mind the potential harm to society of the 672 grams of cocaine that the petitioner possessed at the time he, arrest, he was arrested. That amount is equivalent to 12,000 hits on the street. That amount makes more than 5,400 rocks of crack, the most addictive and dangerous form of cocaine in use today. But, but Mr. Thompson, uh, it would be the same even if it were diluted, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, sir. The are. number of hits that are, are possible has nothing that, to do with the sentence, does it? Well, it, 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 it I mean, if has 672 grams, 1% cocaine would be the same sentence. Yes, if that, that's theoretically possible, but it has something to do uh, about why the state legislature used the 650 gram as the markoff for mandatory life in prison. This was a lot of cocaine, and the state legislature recognized the devastating effect of that mu uh, much cocaine when it introduced this law and made this part of the law. The individual culpability of you this... Said it, you said it was addictive. That's why they did it. That's not what the report says. It says it's a non-addictive drug. It is an addictive drug as far as its psychological and physiological effects has on the person that takes crack cocaine. Is that in the legislative history? Uh, no, you're not. It's the opposite not. in the legislative history. It's described as a non-addictive drug. The law enforcement lab people who are experienced in this, the professionals that handle this, indicate it is a highly addictive drug. A significant number of people who use crack for the first time become addicts. That is common knowledge in the law enforcement area. The other thing I would like to, to uh, indicate, uh, Justice Stevens, is that the legislative history is not really an official part of the legislature. That is merely a document that was prepared by the staff of the Senate and the House. So it is not really something that is in the official uh, records of the legislature. No more official than your reference to this uh, general understanding about that. Is, that is correct, Your Honor. <laughs> but, Given the fact that the, that the 650 grams could be diluted down, as Justice Stevens said, uh, isn't the real point of the, of the 650-point uh, uh, cutoff uh, not so much to identify the seriousness of the specific offense, because he could be selling the, 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 uh, the person possessing could be possessing something greatly diluted, isn't the point of it really to, as, as kind of a surrogate way of identifying a, a distributor? In other words, isn't the statute really saying, regardless of what the, the dilution may be, anybody who possesses this quantity of a substance must be possessing it for something other than personal consumption? Yes, Your Honor. Right. That was a legislative inference, I think, they made when they decided that cutoff, that 650 grams. Someone does not possess that for personal use. Someone possesses that with the intent to deliver. 
In fact, petitioner admits uh, in his own brief that I'm a mule of transport in an attempt to minimize his culpability. Is However, there a separate state offense for a possession with intent to distribute? It is a separate state offense, Your Honor, but the penalties are the same. And here, the offense charged and for which the conviction was obtained was mere possession, not possession with intent to distribute. Yes, yes, Your Honor. And the prosecutor's office, with the facts that we had, could easily have charged possession with intent to deliver. Which would which would import the same penalty life. Which would import the same penalty life, but there we would have a different element, an additional element that we would have to prove, which we could have in this case, but which we felt not necessary and not prudent to uh, make it diff- more difficult for us to win a prosecution. Could you have proved it with a lesser quantity? Let's say, for example, you had 500 with intent to distribute. What would the penalty have that been? Would be the, that, that would be a lesser penalty on that, Your Honor. It would be a mandatory 20 years to a maximum of 30 years. But if we're dealing with 650, the penalty is the same, whether it's uh, mere possession or possession with intent to distribute? Yes, Your Honor. Again, going back to the inference... What, what's the, the basis for the distinction, then? Uh, the, the legislature just developed two laws. The, the inference is the same. If you have 650 uh, grams of cocaine then that is not for your personal uh, consumption. That is an indication to the legislature that this was going to be for transport, for delivery. And in fact, in this case, the defendant admits in the petition that I was merely a mule. Now, But let let me go back to my example. Um, Does the Michigan law read that if he possesses 650 with intent to distribute, it's life without parole, and if he possesses 650, period, it's life without parole. Yes, Your Honor. Well, that pretty much destroys the suggestion I made a moment ago, doesn't it, uh, that the real point of the law was to identify uh, these people, because uh, the, the law seems to be drawing a, a, a distinction that, does not, uh, that is not consistent with the, with the distinction that I was making. I, I think that uh, not trying to read what the legislature was thinking when they did that, uh, there is no difference as far as the penalty goes, but I do believe that the legislature was identifying, as you indicated, people who have that, mu- uh, that much cocaine on their possession do, are going to be involved in the trade. It is not for personal consumption. How did these two statutes come to be? Was, was the, is, is the uh, intent to distribute statute an older one, and this uh, possession statute was simply added to it? No, Your Honor. They, they've had these those kinds of crimes for a long time. However, back in 1977, the legislature started to hold hearings, public hearings across the state, state, trying to address the problem of drugs. And they listened to the community. And you say that they enacted simultaneously two statutes, one of which says you get life for possessing 650 grams with intent to distribute, and in addition, at the same time, the same legislature drafted another statute that said you get 650 for possessing 600 so you get part of the same act. However, yeah. as you go down further, uh, when you get below 50 grams, then the penalties do change. Where if you have possession of less than 50, 50 grams, you have a four-year uh, possibility of, of uh, sentence. But if you possess with intent to deliver, then the penalty is more. But at and, the top level... Mr. Thompson, now suppose there's a grandmother that's keeping a suitcase for her grandson, who's the mule, and it contains cocaine. He's gone for the weekend. She keeps it for him. 
life without parole, right? No, Your Honor. Mere possession. No, no, Your Honor. Uh, Merely having that suitcase in your closet does not fulfill the requirements of possession. Uh, The person must know the nature of the contents, must have that knowledge, plus the intent to uh, establish some control, whether it be constructive or uh, act, uh, true control over the... Over grandson says, I hate to tell you this, grandmother, it's cocaine. Keep it for me for the weekend. <laughs> Your Honor, if, we ha- if the prosecutor had that kind of information, uh, there is that prosecutorial discretion that could be exercised in deciding whether you're going to charge the grandmother or whether you're going to use the grandmother. And, and would, that be, the, would that be exercised in the interest of justice? I can't give a definite yes or no on that, Your Honor, because I, I can see circumstances... Discretion by the prosecutor would be exercised in some cases in the interest of justice. Yes, yes Your Honor. So that this statutory scheme does permit an exception uh, in the occasional case in the interest of justice by the prosecutor, but not by the judges? There's, there are checks and balances. Even once, that, once the warrant is issued, Your Honor, if the prosecutor wants to make an agreement of some kind with the defendant uh, in this level of drug narc, uh, dealing, the prosecutor must get permission from the court. Because what the legislature... The point is you think this is an element in defending the statute that there is a grounds in some cases not to impose the full sentence. But that's exactly what the petitioner is saying ought to be the case and that you're resisting. There, well, we always have, if, if I understand your question or, or your statement, we always have discretion in the system someplace. Sometimes it's with, with the prosecutor and sometimes with, it's with the court. In this particular case, the legislature said but then, we were uh, going to eliminate that discretion Mr. from the Thompson, court. Supposing the, statu- the, the uh, legislature passed a statute and said it shall be a mandatory duty of the prosecutor to prosecute to the full extent of the law because this problem is so serious we've got to get these people off the street. You eliminated discretion from the prosecutor for this particular area. Would that be constitutional? That doesn't trouble you, does it? Well, the prosecutor has the prosecutor must enforce the law. Right. And and in in Michigan, I find it surprising that you defend the law on the ground that the the prosecutor might ignore it, which is what you're saying. Uh, The prosecutor does not ignore it, Your Honor. The prosecutor has discretion, as it has in any law that it's the prosecutor is going to. You think that's essential to sustain the constitutionality of this law? No, Your Honor. You think the law would be equally constitutional if instead of 650 grams, it was 50 grams? Yes, Your Honor. So it's a what, very simple case. What, what, in, in my view, it is, Your Honor. What we have here is the democratically elected representatives, representatives of the people saying, expressing a societal interest in, in deterring this crime and permanently removing people from society who participate in this crime. And is it correct? We have a... Is it correct that for this kind of sentence, unlike most others, the, there is no interest in rehabilitation to justify the punishment? The sole interest is deterrence. Yes, Your Honor. Deterrence, both general and individual. Deterrence to prevent other people from getting involved, and deterrence to keep this person from getting back out on the street to uh, purvey uh, his drugs again. Well, on the deterrence point, what about those 1,200 that are in prison now? The uh, one we have in prison right now, 123 individuals charged and convicted under this act, Your Honor. Uh, those people will never deal their drugs again. Is, is there any evidence that uh, all of them knew of this sentence? 
of this of this law? Uh, Your Honor, it would be merely speculation on my part. I know that. Uh, and in this case, any evidence that uh, this uh, uh, petitioner knew of the law? I I don't know, Your Honor. I, I, it, again, it would be speculation on my part. The defendant did not take the stand. The defendant, by the way, was given an opportunity to address the court at the time of sentencing and uh, did not address the court. The defense counsel was given an opportunity to address the court at time of sentencing, and the defense counsel said, I've re read the pre-sentence report, and it's accurate. He didn't deny... Mr. Thompson, I just don't understand this. Sorry. What good would it do to address the court under the statute? I mean, what are you going to say to him? I don't like the statute? Well, I was responding to the question. Well, I know. Of I'm, what I'm, is I'm in not criticizing your response, but yeah. really, aren't we, are we talking about anything that has to do with the decision of the issue before us? No, Your Honor. No. Was was it at the sentencing hearing that the Eighth Amendment issue was raised? No, Your Honor. When when was uh, that it? Was at the appeals level, the first appeal, the Court of Appeals. Um, at the point at the at the trial, okay. it was a trial by a judge, and the only questions there were uh, uh, search and seizure. Questions. Those were resolved in the prosecutor's favor, and uh, we had a, a one-day trial. At, at any point, was a request made uh, to supplement the record with, with evidence that might be relevant to the Eighth Amendment issue beyond what was already in the record? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Getting to, the, getting to the petitioner's culpability in, in this uh, case, which I think is important, not only did he have a pound and a half of cocaine on his person, pure cocaine, by the way, not mixed, he had uh, on his person also uh, $3,500 in cash, a sifter, which is commonly used to crush cocaine, to dilute it with other material, uh, other uh, narcotics, he had on his person a beeper, a, a pager. He had on his person a coded address book. He had on his person a 38 caliber pistol strapped to his ankle. This was a person that just did not happen to come upon a pound and a half of cocaine. This was an individual that was deeply involved in the drug trade. At the time of his arrest, he was, it was at 5, 10 a.m. at the time of his arrest. But even before then, police observed him going in and out of the motel area between 2.45 a.m. and 5 a.m. in a highly, uh, in a high drug trafficking area. Mr. Thompson, uh, uh, in addition to the fact that uh, the governor uh, uh, can uh, grant clemency to this person, I, I gather you, you, you agree that uh, the yes, governor sir. could uh, grant clemency uh, if, if he wishes. I assume the Michigan legislature, if it, if it uh, came to the conclusion that this is a stupid law and, and is in fact not uh, deterring, uh, as, uh, as counsel asserts it is not, I assume they could repeal the law and could retroactively reduce the sentence? Could the Michigan, can the Michigan legislature do that, or is it written in stone? Uh, the Michigan legislature could do that. The Michigan mm -hmm. Supreme Court can do that, and they've done it before when a law has become mm -hmm. uh, more lenient mm -hmm. the, uh, from the time that the person was uh, convicted of the crime. But, so, Your Honor, I think so, that's so, so we, we, we could we could wait uh, several years to see if the Michigan legislature... Uh, really believes this thing works, and if it doesn't, uh, they, they might well repeal it and, and reduce the sentences Honor, meted out under it. The Michigan legislature has twice visited this law since it was adopted in 1978. Back in 1987, they amended some of the penalties below the 650 level and reduced them by half. A year later, they revisited again and raised those penalties back up because they said that the law stopped to have the deterrent effect. And that's what is important about this. I wonder if there was an intervening election. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I don't know. We're always having elections in Michigan, Your Honor. But that's an important part. They are representing the will and the societal interest in this, in this area. And I think this court, through its stated uh, concerns about separation of powers and federalism and judicial restraint, ought to leave this case where it is, in the hands of the legislature, who are preeminently uh, involved with the line-drawing schemes when you're dealing with crimes and the punishments for those crimes. Now, petitioner says I'm not a drug kingpin. Now, I don't know what a drug kingpin is because it is not defined in the, in the uh, Michigan uh, statute. But assuming it's someone that has a lot of drugs, what, what is the level that we have to decide that makes a drug kingpin? We do know he was involved in a lot of drugs. This statute, uh, I submit respectfully to the court, was anchored in the practicalities of the drug distribution network. We realize that when you're dealing with drugs, you've got the street-level dealer that has to depend on a large supplier to get the drugs, and you have the large supplier that needs to depend on the street-level dealer to get the drugs. What we were focusing in on was the entire drug distribution network, not the man at the top, because we realize the man at the top doesn't even get close to the drugs. And if we had this uh, statute focused in on the kingpin, it would have been doomed to failure from the start. But what we do have is a focus on the entire distribution network. And contrary to petitioner's position, it has had a dramatic inf impact on the drug distribution problem that we had in Michigan. Before this act, when someone got caught, they had a very lenient sentence. They'd serve their time. They'd go right back out on the streets and commit their uh, acts again. It was merely a cost of doing business. Now, when we catch someone under the, this act, the first thing they do is talk to the prosecutor about making a deal, wanting to turn the bigger man in. Contrary to what the petitioner says, this has had an impact on us getting the drug kingpin, because this statute was anchored on the practicalities of the drug distribution network in the state of Michigan. What, do you have any figures to back you up? Uh, I, I have... Uh, not a part of the record, Your Honor, but the Michigan State Police in their annual report uh, indicated that it does have want, a return. I don't want anything outside the record. I didn't ask for it. Okay. Well, I don't have anything in the record. Itself. I assume that what you tell me is in the record. No, Your Honor. And you haven't told me a crying thing about the fact that it, the crime of selling drugs has dropped off since this statute was passed. That is correct, but as it was observed before, we don't know how high it would have been without the statute. And that's where you get into those but you don't know anything about what's happened. Not regarding the impact of a particular statute right. with the entire uh, drug distribution scene out there. You no, don't you know are. anything about we the don't. impact. And, and it would be very difficult well, to develop the, a scientific study about that. What the world are you arguing about? Because the, the, purpose, the purpose of this statute was deterrence. And the state legislature has indicated that. And when they reduced the charge, they br brought it back up, the penalties, they brought it back up because the state legislature said that we weren't getting deterrence out of the more lenient sentences. What standard do you think we apply to test proportionality under the Eighth Amendment? Or do we just not make an examination at all? 
Your Honor, uh, I think the test that this Court has enunciated in Psalm is whether there is gross disproportionality involved. And a lot has been said about what other states do as far as the drug um, laws go. And does any other state have uh, a similar penalty for mere possession? Not as tough, Your Honor. Not, we have, and I will admit we have the toughest penalties, but this Court has said that merely because a state has the toughest penalty in any area does not mean it's grossly dis- disproportionate, because under our federal system, there will always be a state that has the distinction of having the severest penalty in some offense. That's the beauty of the federal system. That people can look to the state of Michigan and see what Michigan's experience is with the drug laws. And as the Solicitor General has said in his brief, that states are starting to follow Michigan's lead, that they are making stricter penalties in the drug area, that in fact the federal government in the last 10 years has amended its Controlled Substance Act three times, and each time it has made the penalties tougher. Now, Petitioner doesn't say uh, it's unconstitutional to create a crime such as we have created, and Petitioner admits that this crime is a grave one, admits it in the brief. The only question that Petitioner has is, has the state-mandated law gone so high as to make it constitutionally impermissible? Now, what that issue does is thrust this court into the line-drawing process, which this court has said on many occasions is preeminently uh, belongs to the legislative branch of government. There is no question about it, Your Honor, that the decision, Your Honors, that the decision in this case will affect the extent to which the state legislatures and the federal government can enact tough laws to deal with this grave crisis that our nation is facing. And I respectfully uh, request that this court send a clear signal that under the, the war on drugs, that tough penalties such as Michigan's are constitutionally permissible. If you have no further questions, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Thompson. The case is submitted.